Psalm 113. God, the helper of the needy. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord, who is settled on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. Mary's song of praise. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he is, has looked with favour on the loneliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lonely. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned to her home. Thanks be to God for his word. Does it ever feel to you like God is a bit needy? In all those instructions and commands to praise God, can almost sound as if God needs a bit of reassurance or encouragement or flattery. I'm all in favour of us giving each other encouragement and praise. Most of us get little enough of it in our lives and most people flourish when they know that they are valued and appreciated. But somehow doesn't it seem a bit odd that God should need the same thing too? Yet if we read through the Psalms, one of the constant refrains is praise the Lord. And one of the constant instructions is, let all that has breath praise the Lord. As we reach the end of our short series on Psalms, and in particular on the different kinds of Psalms, we're going to think about praise, about worship. We started with what's amongst the most common of the Psalms, the looking at lament. We've considered anger and strong emotion. We've reflected on thanksgiving 
and we've thought our way through the movements of faith from naivety through confusion to a place of reorientation. And all of those are contained within the words of the Psalms. And today we come to praise, to worship. What we tend to think of as the overriding theme of the whole collection, though in fact that's debatable. But whether or not it's true numerically, it's certainly true of our way of experiencing the Psalms. The way most of us know them in detail is through our use of them in worship and in general, the ones we use are the ones that are about praise, that give us words for praise. We sing them, we use them in our hymns and our prayers. And that takes me to this question that I started with. When we stop and think about it dispassionately, isn't it a bit odd that God asks us to worship him? You've all had the experience, I'm sure, of the person in power who is so needy, so insecure and fragile, they need constant bolstering and stroking to stop them trying to gain that satisfaction elsewhere by harming others or exerting their power at the expense of others just to prove to themselves and to the rest of the world that they are important, they are big, they do exist. Is God so needy, so insecure, so anxious that we have to keep stroking God's ego to stop God getting so distressed that the consequences will be terrible. Certainly an image of God that's out there. Some of the discourse, some of the challenges to faith. I've certainly had it thrown at me. What's so special about, what's so needy about your God that you're constantly being told to praise? Have you heard this one? On the whole, it's not an image of God we want to subscribe to, I don't think. But it does raise the question about why are we instructed so often to worship God? And it's not enough simply to say we worship God in the same way as we praise the person we love in conversation to or about them, or boast about our adored children, or perhaps our nieces in my case, or whatever young people bless our lives. That's great. That spontaneous, natural outpouring of affection and love and delight is wonderful. But we don't need to be told to do that. Sometimes we need to be told to stop because we go on doing it so much. We don't need to be told to tell the person we love that we love them. We don't need to be told to boast to everybody about our children or our nieces. But we are often told to praise God. So why does it matter? Who is affected by our practice of worship? And if it isn't that God is needy and needs our worship to feel good, then why are we instructed to do it? One of the commentators on this psalm tells this anecdote about it. He says, William Beebe was a worldwide explorer and friend of President Theodore Roosevelt. And often when he visited the president, the two men would go outdoors at night to see who could first locate the Andromeda galaxy. Then as they gazed at the tiny smudge of distant starlight, one of them would recite... That is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And after that thought had sunk in, Roosevelt would flash his toothy grin and say, now I think we're small enough, let's go to bed. Now there is a truth in this. Worship as teaching us our place in the universe, i.e. not at the center, not the most important thing, is one of the most significant lessons we can learn. I was listening to a friend interacting with her, her daughter recently, the, the child, a, a young, or a, sort of in her mid-teens. She'd had a very busy and creative and perhaps overstimulating week and 
was tired and possibly not currently managing the situation she found herself in very well. She was getting a bit demanding, um, upset over something fairly trivial to do with a sibling. And her mother said very calmly, quick newsflash, it's not all about you. It was just a nice moment of reminding we're not at the center of the universe. And if worshiping God is to remind us of our place in the universe, then that's important. Knowing it's not all about me is really, really important. But while that is a truth about us, it is not the only truth. There are times when we need to be reminded that we are not the center of the universe. But there are also times when we do have to take seriously our place and our power. And simply dwelling on the fact of our insignificance is not always the most healthy or the most empowering stance to take. If I'm totally insignificant and don't matter, I might as well give up and go home. There's another school of thought about worship um, that says what's important about it is the effect it has on me. That worship is an experience that draws me close to God. If it doesn't make me feel that I've met God, got some sort of buzz or lift or what might be called a blessing from it, then it has not been good worship. That's the kind of approach that kind of taken too far lead to all the struggles about what is proper worship. Hymns or modern songs, organ or drums, choir or worship reading group or whatever it is, the fights over this can get quite out of hand. And at their root is this question, is what is worship for? What's it about? But if all it is about is about making me feel good in the moment or giving me a lift to get me through the next week, then that might be a very good experience. But I don't think it's what the psalmist is talking about. If sometimes we are challenged about worship with the accusation that it suggests God is needy or tyrannical, we can be even more challenged that worship is only about our experience, making us feel good, giving us an escape. And that it's not in contact with the world and the struggles of the world. We come in to worship to escape from the outside world. That's not a healthy place to be. One of the aims stated or implied in the Psalms of Praise when they talk about worship and command us to praise is to counteract idolatry. Who is like our Lord, the Lord our God is the way it's done in, in the Psalm we've listened to. But we see it in a variety of ways. We'd gone on to Psalm 115. It's a bit more explicit there. Why should the nation say, where is their God, to Israel? Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They make no sounds in their throats. The, the living God is contrasted with the idolatrous God. But why does idolatry matter? If it's not about reassuring the divine ego, as if God is some kind of insecure husband who becomes jealous if his wife talks to another man. And if God does not need to be soothed and calm, why does it matter? Well, if we go on in Psalm 115, we get to the next verse, those who make them are like them, and so are all who trust in them. The book by a man called G.K. Beale, called We Become What We Worship, argues that at the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. And he explores this by looking at what the Bible says about idolatry. He argues that the scripture texts demonstrate that the worship of idols leads to 
the representation of those characteristics in the lives of the worshippers. And he goes on then to say that in the same way, worshipping God as God has revealed himself to us, fulfills who we truly are, the image of God, and shapes us to, to express that image. We become what we worship. If worship is understood as giving attention to or valuing or offering worth to, noticing as important, those things and ideas and practices that take our awareness and our attention are going to be the ones that shape who we are. We become what we pay attention to. We become what we honor. We become what we value. We become like it. We mirror it. And the warnings and the condemnations of idolatry are not about other religions per se, and they're not contained in, they're not about the rejection of statues in places of worship. The point, the whole point of them is to say worship is so powerful, so shaping of us, of who we are and how we behave, that it matters who we worship. It matters that we worship one worthy of worship because we will be shaped by that. It's not that our place in the nature of the world is unimportant, but it is very important. And if who we are is shaped by that which is cruel, or self-centered, or greedy, or dominating, then that will shape us, and we will become like that. And the consequences will matter. Our worshipping shapes how we are in the world and shapes who we are in the world. It has an effect on us, and it's not trivial. And it's not just about the preference of one type of music or one style of leading. It's about God. And it is about drawing us into encounter with God, not to make us feel good, but to make us who we are to make us the people of God. And so it matters who this God is. So who is it the psalmist is worshipping? Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. This is a God who is above and beyond our little span of attention and impact, who's greater than the days or the weeks or even the years that we usually measure things in, who's not constrained by the short scale of our lifetime or our attention, or our strength. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. He's a God who is above, who is other than all the power structures, all the forms of identity and differentiation that we take for granted, above all the religious and structural patterns we've created, all that we use to attempt to make sense of or to control our world. And to offer praise to this God, yes, is to remember it's not all about us. But even more, it is to be assured, to be reassured that all that we know, all that we work with, all that we fear and struggle with is also not the center. In a context where short-term political policies appear too often to shape things, because the system that we have constrains people to work within periods of election and power and not to take too long to get it done in time for the next election or done in ways that will enable the next voting. That system will turn ourselves and our attention and our energy towards doing things quickly. This worship turns us towards something other, to another set of timings, to another vision of what is going on. And in a world which narrow borders and close definitions and tight constraints are the powerful ones, we are turned in our worship to someone who is greater than all of that and whose life and love and presence are not constrained by any of the structures that we have invented and that we do need to work with. If we are formed by what we worship, 
then offering worship to this God who is high above it all shapes us so that we are not afraid and not overwhelmed and not hopeless or despairing. So we can have vision and hope and courage and imagination about how things might be different. And what we were doing on Friday morning when we stood outside the home office and said, we remember this and we want you to remember this and we want to challenge the narrow constraints you're putting on. It comes out of this sense that God is above all that and we worship God. And when we were listening last night to some powerful words about not having the luxury of despair for those who are living in under the occupation, it was about a hope that came from knowing there was something bigger than the structures that were currently oppressing. Worshipping this God, who is high above all, who is outside of all time, leads us into a bigger way of imagining and therefore working. Of course, it could, and all too often it has, lead us towards the worship of power and domination. This God who is high above all, who is over all, who is beyond all human constraints, this is a very powerful God. And if that is who and what we worship, we can find ourselves drawn in ways that I suggest are deeply unhealthy. It is easy to worship power, to worship what is dominant and successful. We saw that in last week's psalm. With the writer, we looked at the world around us and at our own hearts within us and understood that what we see is that power and oppression often appear to succeed. And that those who make their own way without paying attention to others often seem to have what they need and want. And that that can look very attractive. And if I can enlist a huge, powerful God on my side to get it, so much the better. Because that gives divine legitimation to such behavior, such activity. If our worship is of a God of power and might cast in terms that we draw from the world that we know so well, we will simply deify and copy those patterns. And nothing will change. And the kingdom will not be seen among us. But the psalmist doesn't leave it with this God high and lifted up above all time and space. The, verses in the, the verbs in the second part of the psalm are all in what in Hebrew is the, called the hifil, the causative form, making something happen, the, the kind of in order to form of the verb. And so we could translate it, God makes God's self high in order to see the heavens and the earth. God acts in order that the poor arise. God makes exalted the needy in order to cause them to sit with the princes. God makes a home for the barren woman and causes her to be a mother. The emphasis is that God is active and that these are the things that God does. God watches over. God raises the poor. God draws in the outcast. God, the, the, the childless woman in a patriarchal society has no place. So God draws in the outcast and God makes life where life is not happening, giving life to the childless woman. What this God is about is turning things upside down and empowering the powerless and overturning the structures. And the psalmist isn't trying to convince us or give us a philosophical argument. These are words of testimony based on the experience of himself and of his people. This psalm is a short one, but others in the collection follow the same shape with more detail. And what's significant is that as well as high and lifted up above all heavens, the God they praise is also the God who has this active and specific involvement 
in the life of the nation, and it is about a radical social upheaval. And we hear it echoed in Mary's words in the Magnificat. It's about overturning things, raising the poor from the dust. Those are words of a poor nation who have discovered in worship that the, the God who is above all is listening to them and is on their side. Lifting the needy from the ash heap are the words of a nation in exile who have lost everything, even the center of their faith. They have lost the temple and then discover that God is still with them and life and faith are possible. And giving the barren woman a home and a family are the words of a nation which has lost everything and discovered life hasn't ended. And that in death and from death, life and hope re-emerge. Their praise of God is rooted both in the conviction of who God is and their testimony to the God they have encountered. It comes not as a philosophical if this, then that, but this is what has happened to us. This is who our God is. Did you know the early Baptists didn't sing hymns? And various reasons for that. They were worried that men and women singing together might lead to immorality. I don't know what they were singing. They were also worried about the opportunities that singing in company would give for showing off. But above all, they were worried about people singing words that weren't true. It wasn't that they were afraid that the person who'd written the hymns, there were some around, wasn't telling the truth. But that singing words of somebody else's experience is dangerous. Because it might lead the congregation into hypocrisy and into claiming for themselves a faith in and an experience of God that they did not truly have. Or even worse, it might lull them into the conviction that all they had to do was sing the stuff. They didn't have to live as if it was true. We might just want to think on that as we consider what we sing and how we offer our praise. Are the words our own? Can we, dare we, make them our own? But it was this singing and not living that really bothered the early Baptists. If we were going to sing it, we had to be willing to live it. And that's what this psalm in particular challenges. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is our God? Our God is known through what God does. And what God does is take the side of the poor and overturn the social structures and create life where there is none. And just as we know who God is by looking at what God does, so we are. So who we are and what we truly believe is evident not in what we say, but in what we do. If our worship of this God who lifts the poor and raises the needy and gives life where there is none does not result in us doing these things too, then we are not worshipping. Or at least we're not worshipping the God of the Psalms, the God revealed to us as we meet at the table. These Psalms, especially the Psalms of Praise, seem to have been written to be used when people came together in the temple for worship. When they met... When they wanted to speak of who God is in and for and through the community, when they were committing themselves to the shaping of this, that the worship made of them, this was the kind of thing they said or sung. It was part of the ritual of being the people of God. And we meet at the table. Who is our God? This is what God looks like. He looks like the one who makes friends with people outside the pale. The people who should not be let in. 
He looks like the one who isn't afraid of controversy, but who also doesn't bully or dominate. He looks like the one who meets people at the table and goes on to the cross. And to worship this God, to come to this table and pray and praise with truth will change us. Going to the event at the Home Office on Friday wasn't something we did apart from worship, but because we worship. Listening to the music last night and committing to being involved in the struggle for peace with justice is not something we do apart from worship, but because we worship. Because we worship a God who we meet at the table, who sees the weak and raises them up. And so we become that kind of people. And to talk, as we will later on this morning, about what it means to have resources and think about how to use them to build fellowship, to serve the people around us, isn't something we happen to do as well as worshipping. It is because we worship. Worship a God we meet in food. Worship a God who welcomes us all to the table, whose self-offering here calls us and shapes us into lives of giving and self-giving. Worship matters. Not to make God feel good, not to make me feel small, not to give me a buzz and lift me through the week. Worship matters because it makes me, makes us, the people of God. And to worship is not easy and it's not comforting and it doesn't just feel good and fun. To worship in spirit and in truth is to give ourselves to God and to let the life that is in Christ live through us. And that is the coming of the kingdom. Amen.